Welcome to Making Sense of Martech, an irregular set of conversations with some of the most interesting people in marketing, tech, and advertising. I'm Juan Mendoza. I write the Martech Weekly Newsletter, a weekly email that covers the most important shifts in marketing technology. People who work in the world's largest media, tech, and marketing companies read it. You can read, listen, and subscribe at themartechweekly.com. Okay, today I am joined by Daryl Alfonso. Daryl is an award-winning marketer and a MarTech professional. He's consulted with several Fortune 500 companies, including General Electric and Abbott Laboratories. And he currently leads marketing operations at Amazon Web Services, where he helps empower thousands of marketers to build world-class customer experiences and to be enabled with marketing technologies. He was also named one of the top MarTech marketers to follow in 2020. And he won the Fearless Marketing Award in 2018. Uh, Daryl's also a two times Marketo champion and is a certified Salesforce administrator. I cannot think of anybody who knows marketing operations better than Daryl, uh, but he's also a frequent speaker at MarTech events. He's regularly posting thought leadership on LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm a personal fan of a lot of the memes that he posts and some of the funny pokes at the industry. Very interesting, very entertaining content um, and very helpful as well. Um, But today we're actually talking about the state of marketing operations and uh, some recent content that Daryl published around the role of revenue operations in marketing and what is sort of causing this alignment between marketing and revenue operations. Um, but then also Alfonso's experience leading large-scale marketing operations for some of the most important companies in the world. And now I give you Daryl Alfonso. Hey, Juan. Thanks uh, for the great introduction. And uh, yeah, I'm a long-time listener. So, <laughs> so, it's, so it's such an honor to be on the podcast. Right. Thank you so much, Daryl. Uh, but I'll, I'd love to know, how did you find yourself at Amazon Web Services and leading uh, teams of thousands of marketers? I'd love to know your story. Uh, how did you get into marketing operations and what's keeping you in it at the moment? Yeah, good question. I, you know, throughout my career, I've worked in across startups, midsize and enterprises and um, always doing B2B marketing, always doing you know some sort of digital marketing. I think my life really changed when I was introduced to Marketo specifically. And I think a lot of people feel the same way about marketing automation. Um, but uh, as you may know, Marketo is, m- rather than a email platform, it's more of a rules and workflow engine. And I found myself being able to build things, you know, for the first time in my career, build solutions, build lead routing solutions, um, automate things without coding. And I think that that's why I stayed in and why a lot of people do. Um, it's this builder mentality, I think, that, that, that really attracts me to, to marketing operations. One other thing that I think that, that marketing operations is compared to maybe some of the other sort of like maybe brand or um, PR or, or maybe even like product marketing is that we're very practical. We, we, we don't do a lot of talking. We do a lot of, you know, action. We do a lot of walking. And, <laughs> and that always resonates with me so much to be able to actually do things. And, you know, versus talking about fluffy stuff, we're out there executing. Um, and that's, that's why I've always stayed in it. And, uh, I, I also 
since I love it so much, I write about it a lot mm. and I try to help others do it. Um, that's, that's what connected me to uh, my former boss. His name is Joe Wrights, who was heading up marketing operations in, in, in Amazon Web Services. I got in touch with him. A spot opened up on the team. I moved to Seattle from you know LA where I lived. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. I've been there for about three years. Wonderful. And I, I do just uh, reflecting on what you were saying there, I do think the marketing operations professional, uh, it's a rare breed of marketer. I mean, you have a marketer that it's almost like a unicorn status type marketer, because uh, to your point, you know, a lot of marketing is highly creative, conceptual, you know, you're running campaigns, you're doing a lot of brand activity. But when you look at somebody who's working in marketing operations, it's highly technical. It's very analytical, but with a really, like you mentioned, clear focus on execution and getting that measurable result back. And so, you know, that's why I love sort of uh, uh, connecting with marketing operations professionals because they know the detail. They know what it takes to build fantastic programs for their customers and to really deliver customer and business value um, in a way that's really specific and highly measurable as well. You know, and so I think our conversation today, uh, talking about the revenue bubble in MarTech and um, I'll let you explain what that is in a minute. I think it's quite an interesting one because I think marketing operations is going through yet another um, evolution and another change in how we approach the role of technology in marketing and businesses. But let's let's delve into this concept of the revenue bubble in MarTech. Now, um, you wrote a, a recent article, um, a fantastic read, very interesting, challenging read as well. Um, and you talk about this concept saying, well, the revenue bubble in MarTech is, is not too dissimilar to the dot-com bubble of 1995 or the housing bubble in 2008, the global financial crisis, of course. Um, but you actually describe it this way, that the revenue bubble happens when go-to-market teams and the technologies they use organize as one central group with one goal, that is sales. Could you give our listeners some background to your thinking and how this is a problem um, in the MarTech space? Uh, how do you frame it and how do you see it? Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. And this is, is this a little bit controversial, but you know, I, I thought of the concept of the bubble because a bubble is something where it just, the interest and the investment and the, um, you know, uh, companies, individuals, everyone gets behind a singular concept and it gets so big that it bursts. Um, and it bursts because it's never really one thing that really, you know, leads to success. Um, and oftentimes it's like overinvestment and, 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 you know, the misrepresentation of how effective something is, you know, like, like was the value of real estate or how easily you could get a loan back in the day. The dot-com bubble was, you know, how important it was to have a website and that you could just make money just because you had one. You know what I mean? That's, that's what, what a bubble is. And when I, when I think about the revenue bubble, it's, you know, uh, all the signs are, uh, Rev the revenue operations function is really popular right now. The, the, the chief revenue officer, revenue marketing, all of these tools and processes, courses, um, clubs that are all popping up because of, because of, of, of this concept of, of revenue and revenue operations. I think it's valuable, but I think that people are treating it like a panacea. 
And, um, you know, there's, and, and I'll talk about this later, but there's evidence that it's not the entire story. So I do think that there's going to be a, 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 a bursting that might happen unless we change our direction. And one other thing too, and here's kind of like another controversial thing that people probably get <laughs> pissed off about, but um, I actually think there was an ABM bubble and I, and I think it burst already. Um, I think that peak ABM was two years ago. I think it was in like 2019, right before the pandemic, where everyone's like, oh, we got to do ABM. We got to do ABM. All these investments, ABM. But, but, but if you look at the platforms and the companies and, 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 the, and, the, and the focus of, of ABM, there hasn't been these really large exits or large successes with ABM the same way that there was with marketing automation. You know what I mean? Because mar marketing automation had really strong foundations and really strong like ties to reality. It was really doing stuff where ABM is so conceptual in so many places. And a lot of people, me included, we just, we describe ABM as just good marketing. Um, so yeah, that's another hot take for you. I think ABM had a, was, had a bubble already. And I think it burst. I think that over time, um, these hype cycles are getting bigger and bigger. So, you know, you talk about ABM in 2019 and now no one's talking about it or very few, there's always a niche that talks about it, but you know, there's all these technology companies that rush to build the next um, thing that's in the trend, right? The ABM or revenue operations, you know, even like I, even earlier this week, I was sat through not one, but two presentations to a B2B business, Daryl, about the metaverse. And, you know, there's just so much hype and the marketers love it. And they, of course, marketers need to experiment and look at these new technologies. But I think what you're getting at is actually the, um, where these things become the, um, you know, the, the, the one thing that to rule them all or the only sort of, um, sort of technology that people should be paying attention to and caring about where you'd have this substrate of marketing operations and um, marketing automation that actually has been continuing to grow, delivers a huge amount of value for companies but is often neglected as well. Gartner talks about the Gartner hype cycle. You know, these cycles happen, but I actually think they're getting bigger and bigger. I think they're, they're sucking more people in. There's more hype around some of these B2B technologies um, where really it's a lot of it, as you say, is just good marketing and solid principles. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think the hype cycles are getting bigger around some of these tech trends or, um, or is something else happening? I think that's a good way to put it. I think that, you know, especially with the marketing vendors, with the technology vendors, they are clamoring to catch on to something, to catch on to some sort of news or to, to catch people's interest and attention. And whatever the topic of the day is, that's what they're going to you know, cling on to. And that's what they're going to say that their technology is the best at, you know, um, and to be quite honest, it's a clever marketing tactic. Mm. You know, um, you see it right now with like PLG and with um, with revenue. That, that's what we're talking about today with revenue. People are always talking about revenue because everyone else is talking about it. Um, so I, I think that, you know, while I don't think that it's a bad way to go, my advice is more to the marketers that are buying. Mm. And it's it's to really think about, go back to first principles, go back to thinking about engaging your customer and using technology to achieve your objectives and create great customer experiences rather than by clinging on to things that are part of the hype cycle, you know, but yeah, as a, as a, as a MarTech vendor marketing strategy, it's pretty clever. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I get I get your view is that a lot of it is actually driven by, um, yeah, marketing technology companies, you know, trying to capture attention, trying to capture mind share and convince um, and convince marketers that these solutions are definitely needed in the uh, marketplace, which brings me, I guess, to the next um, point around this concept of the revenue bubble. Um, you know, I think one reason for why I think there's a strong alignment now between marketing, revenue, and sales and B2B. Uh, I think that alignment is actually being driven mostly by the pandemic. And it'd be very interesting to see how now we're getting out of the pandemic and, you know, hopefully it's in the rearview mirror now, but, you know, once we get out of it, how that alignment changes in a lot of B2B companies, because if you think about it and uh, McKinsey actually in 2021 did a study on this that said that two to two out of three B2B buyers are now opting for remote interactions and digital self-service. And that is actually leading to, uh, I think a lot of sort of B2B switching to uh, e-commerce, a lot of that sort of sales processes are now um, partially automated. Um, A lot of those interactions happen through video conferencing. You know, there's a lot of sort of that digital transition in the sales department and there's a lot of disruption as well so you know you kind of feel for somebody who's working in sales for 30 years and they're an excellent salesperson they know how to go in to a enterprise business and they go into their office and they know how to own a room and they know how to really sell in person and now over the past three years that whole world has changed for people in sales but i actually think it's really interesting because you know even uh even last week the news came out that a company called big commerce they've just recently purchased a b2b e-commerce platform and they're integrating that into their ecosystem you know and there's a lot of that kind of thing happening where there's a lot of these sort of b2b sort of um, e-commerce buying solutions that are coming into market um, and I actually think that's influencing how teams are organizing themselves. I recently had a conversation with a, uh, a former CMO at a pretty large sort of uh, enterprise um, data company. He was a CMO and then he changed his role to CRO, Chief Revenue Officer, because he wanted to bring marketing and revenue operations in together in line to use some of this technology. Now, um, what are your thoughts on that? What are some of the factors do you think have sort of led into this um, this concept of marketing and revenue operations alignment? And you know, what what does that look like in terms of what you're seeing in the marketplace? Yeah, and you know, just to make like a really small comment on the the, the whole changing of the pandemic thing, I think that what it really came down to is that you know the pandemic accelerated what was already happening. And revealed, you know, I think the re- the the reality of of a lot of sales and marketing processes that were excessive and that were expensive, and that you know, here's an example: if 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 you want to sell Zoom or if you want to sell, you know, um, a chat application, do you have to meet with everybody at their company to sell that? It, mm. it doesn't really make sense, um, especially when people can sign up for it on their own. So I think that that's what happened. I think, I think there's always going to be a place for the complex sale, but, but, you know, some, some salespeople were really having an easy time, um, because they would, would just, you know, set up meetings and then, you know, direct them to a place where they could buy. Um, so, so anyway, that, that, that's what I think about, about what happened there. Now, now, when it comes to, you know, why is marketing becoming more revenue sales focused? Um, here's the reason. So historically, 
marketing was often view, viewed as the arts and crafts department and marketers wanted to change that perception. So this is where the revenue concept of revenue marketing came from. There was a book called Revenue Disruption. It was by the CEO of, of Marketo, CEO of founder Marketo. Mm. Um, and I was a big fan of that too, because to be honest, um, something like this needed to happen. I think that if you think about the you know, golden age of advertising and stuff like that, it, it really didn't do a good job of, of shaping what marketers were supposed to be. You know, people, a lot of people come, come from college and they go into marketing to be creative, but just for the sake of it, you know, just for the sake of being creative, they went to, into marketing. And that was a problem, you know, because that's not what, well, that's not the purpose. The purpose of, of, of marketing like business is to create customers and engage and, and service customers for, you know, um, while at the same time driving profitable outcomes. So, so, you know, creating a beautiful commercial just for the sake of it, it's not the point. So anyway, that's what, that's, that's what happened, right? So now uh, you've, got, you've got revenue marketing and where everyone started to shift toward, oh, everything has to, has to be tied to revenue. And that did a really great job of changing the perception of marketers. And I think it was, I think it was fantastic until now. And I think, and why I say that is, I think we've gotten to a place where marketing is actually viewed in most places, especially most successful companies as a growth driver for the business. I think, I think it really is. And, um, you know, for marketers that don't still feel like they're treated like the arts and craft crafts department or something like that, my advice to them is to just, you know, I think Sarah Kennedy Ellis said it best because someone she was, she's the former CMO of Marketo. She now is the VP of digital at, at, at Google. And they, they asked her a question. They said, Hey, you know, how can marketers earn a seat at the table? And she said, you know, I'm, she said, I'm so sick of that question. You know, just freaking sit down, <laughs> you know, be a business person. Like there's no earning the, a seat anymore. It's you're either a business person or you're not. And, and you don't need to, you know, it, it's not a perception thing to be able to ask the hard questions. Everyone can do that. You know, what's the ROI on this program? How is it going to impact customers? Why is this investment better than this one? You know, we're, if we're, we're all working in business, especially in B2B companies, and these are, this is the way that we need to look at our work. Um, so, so that's why that, that's, I think is the history behind the entire sort of shift toward revenue marketing, which was initially a good thing, but now, um, is starting to get dangerously one-sided. It's, it's really interesting because there's this aspect here of over-indexing on a certain element of marketing. So to your point, you know, it was a good thing to, for businesses to take marketers more seriously, right? Not just arts and crafts. Um, you know, these people are responsible for growing your brand, for maintaining your brand, for, um, driving your customers, delivering great experiences, customers, and all those wonderful things, right? Those are all, um, you know, highly aligned to business growth and all of those important metrics around customer um, success as well. And so, you know, it's good to sort of step out of that. And we're not just arts and crafts. We're not just the creative department here. We're actually something bigger and more important. And we have a lot more to offer. That's fantastic. But over-indexing on that means that everything becomes quite tactical. Uh, you know, everything becomes 
How do we, you know, drive more customers to do this thing X or Y, you know, how do we give customers more and more discounts, you know, so they buy, you know, there's a lot of a huge tactical focus that I think that comes with um, sort of digital marketing and, you know, even Mark Ritson. So he, um, he writes for marketing week and he's also a professor of marketing at a few different universities um, over time. But, um, but he, he said it really well that digital marketing isn't a strategy marketing should be your strategy and digital is just one part of that. And I think there's been a lot of confusion, particularly about the around the sort of next generation coming into this, where all they've seen is Google ads and Facebook ads and, you know, <laughs> email marketing and their digital channels and the social media, um, you know, and all they've seen is that stuff. And they think that marketing is that. It's all this highly tactical, very sort of bottom of the funnel type activities. Um, whereas, you know, that's sort of over-indexing on that revenue operations and optimizing towards revenue and sales, as opposed to the holistic picture, building a brand, you know, having a, um, you know, having mental availability in your customers' minds is brands, right? And building brand and building those affinities and building that message around who, what your company actually stands for. You know, those things are extremely important for the long-term, you know, and I think we've lost that in a bit of the noise of, um, you know, highly tactical sort of revenue focused activities. And so I'm, I'm glad that you bring that up. I think there's a generational shift and there's also that over-indexing in uh, how markers want to be perceived in businesses as well. But there is actually three things that you talk about, which makes B2B marketing really great. If we step out of the revenue bubble for a minute and we look at the sort of broader picture here, um, you know, you say that, um, and I agree with you here in the article that uh, everything should lead to a sale in B2B marketing. Absolutely agree. I think that's right. Um, you know, that's kind of why we're here is to drive business growth. Fantastic. But I think... And you say that over the years, your views become a little bit more nuanced as well. And you say that, you know, the best brands don't just focus on revenue alone. Um, you mentioned three examples, community building, doing product-led growth, and also brand marketing. And my question for you is, what are some great examples out there in the marketplace of B2B brands, marketers and B2B brands, really building these three sort of other pillars around their marketing technology? And what does that look like? Yeah, I think so... If we could start with product-led growth, for example, and, you know, some of my favorite examples are Zoom and Slack, and you can think of other companies too. And, you know, how I think about really great product-led growth is when the users drive it, right? They, they take your product into another company. They start using your product. You know, there's stories of, of hundreds of employees using Slack without IT's knowledge, you know, to the point where they have to buy it because they're already using it um, and then they pass it on. So, so that is a great example. I also like Zoom because if you think about it, there was never really any sales process with Zoom. Like, how did you learn about Zoom? Did you learn about it from a salesperson saying like, hey, Juan, can I talk to you for five minutes about Zoom? No, you you were invited to a Zoom meeting. Yeah, <laughs> that's how it works. That's product-led growth, mm. and I have a hard time believing that their success was driven by an organization where just revenue was the top focus, and everyone started to focus around revenue. I think product is much different. I think it's very much focused on the customer, very much fo focused on you know, product management, best practices, um, and, and, and really just customer experience. So, so that's an easy one is, is, is PLG. I think, I think with community building, 
this one is not so much that revenue it it that they're not really tied together it's more of a community is a valuable thing that you should build to help accelerate your growth but it has nothing to do with revenue and that's my point around community whenever you try to and you think of these great communities like salesforce trailblazers trailhead um uh, marketo has a fantastic community hubspot um um other companies have really big communities and the moment you try to extract money from these people, you're, you, you start to lose them. You know, you, 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 you become inauthentic. Um, community is all about the members and all about them helping each other and doing things on their own. You know, um, that's community. And the, the minute you, you start to attach a revenue number to that, you've lost. So that's, 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 where, rev, that's where community building comes in. And then brand, I think, has is the age-old story of the most of, of one of the most powerful marketing um, components ever. And you know, the way that I like to describe it is, you know, if you if you if you walk into a room and they already know where you're from and they've already heard wonderful things, and you're the first thing that they think about when they think about the problem, that's brand, mm. um, and that's not really revenue focused. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot of, you know, um, a lot of strategy, a lot of advertising, um, the good kind of advertising and, um, you know, a lot of customer experience that goes into that. So those, all those three things don't really have a revenue focus. And if you, if you start excluding those things that, um, and you go, go too long without those things, the revenue bubble will burst. Mm. I think about this in a few different ways. Um, I actually think I wrote a piece just uh, a few uh, weeks ago in the MarTech Weekly newsletter, uh, TMW79, I think it was. And um, in that newsletter, I talked about the fantasy of marketing attribution. And it touches on this topic quite well in the sense that where I was talking about how a lot of things in marketing uh, are just not measurable. I mean, even what you were just talking about now about a community and how supported somebody feels in the community and, you know, how much they participate. Well, you know what, um, maybe a lot of that activity is coming through direct messages in that community and not in the public channels. So you can't really measure that activity. You know, there's a lot of examples in which there's all this great marketing happening, but it's just impossible to measure all of that, which makes a business case really hard to justify to say, Hey, let's invest, let's put a million dollars. Let's build a fantastic online learning community to support our product. Okay. What's the ROI on that? Well, we're going to give it away for free and we're going to make our customers successful. Yeah. Maybe we can put our finger in the air and say it might retain customers or it might do this or that, but it's very hard to forecast and attribute the, uh, the direct sort of revenue line from that. And that's kind of the point. You do these things as conceptual bets to actually drive value for your company because you're so clued in and you know that the market so well that it would just make sense to invest into that. And I think that's sort of where a lot of B2B marketers get tripped up is that, oh, if we can't measure or forecast the re return on investment here, then it's not worth doing. Well, you know, kind of tell that to Salesforce, right? Salesforce does their Dreamforce event every year. It's kind of like the, the mecca of MarTech in a lot of ways, right? And they dump millions and millions and they get celebrities and they have this huge event every year. 
And, you know, how much is that leading to revenue? Well, I'm very certain that Salesforce wouldn't know every single conversion from every conversation that happened on every trade booth. And so, you know, you look at successful companies like Salesforce, one of the biggest companies in, in the world, particularly in the MarTech space, you look at companies like Zoom, which have no idea how much, how many, you know, they know how many people are using the software, but, you know, they don't know how, know, know how big the impact of their brand is, right, through that product-led um, activity, you know, and then also community. I mean, yeah, sure, like there's great communities like uh, MoPros, um, good friend of mine, Mike Rizzo, building a fantastic community. And there's a lot of vendors going into that community and doing a bunch of partnerships and, you know, a bunch of brand activations, but, you know, the point of that is to really connect with people and to help people um, as a marketer. And so I, I completely agree with you that, you know, the best brands don't just focus on revenue. It's always short term. It's always sort of the one piece in the jigsaw puzzle of the bigger picture of marketing. And I do appreciate your comments there. Um, so I want to shift a little bit and talk about... Um, I guess your outlook on the marketing technology space, particularly around marketing automation. I mean, marketing automation has evolved quite a bit over time. You know, you know, I remember back in the days where being able to send a HTML email out of a system to a cut list was sort of the most um, sort of capable platforms were able to do that. But now it's all cross channel. It's uh, a lot of it is actually mobile focused. You know, Braze is probably one of the more successful sort of um, uh, marketing automation platforms, which heavily focuses on mobile marketing. You know, so you look at these different platforms and their evolution and how many features they've added over time. But you um, actually uh, recent in another article, you actually talk about this concept of the marketing automation platform. Uh, in the future, they won't have databases in their own right. And that idea is fairly novel to me. And I would love for you to unpack what that means for our audience as well. Yeah, um, happy to. And this is such a fascinating subject. Um, of course, I have to give uh, credit to Jep, Jep Kapelstein who, who came up with the original idea. Um, behind the article. So, so if you think about it like this, so, so the concept is the future marketing automation platforms won't have databases. If you think about a marketing automation platform, you know, Marketo, for example, but most others, they're really a rules and workflow engine that runs actions on a database. Okay, so that's what's happening. Um, and there's a couple of issues with that. One is that um, you know, it's the marketing automation platform is not really a core database tool. It's not really meant to have house all of your data and, you know, all of the features and functionalities that you would need with, uh, you know, something like a CDP or a data warehouse. So you're missing a lot of those, those core features. Um, and, you know, one of the, one of the, the evidence of that is that uh, Marketo's database at any company is usually very uh, dirty, for lack of a better term. You know, the data is messed up. The you know, uh, there's a lot of duplicates. So, so there's there's a lot of issues with you know just having having a database, and and this idea of, of databases is is getting in more more and more importance um, over time, and, and especially because you know um, you you need to store more and more information in there. Today, the best marketers are using customer data, like product and service usage data, how much they're spending, how long they've been customers, what are they doing inside the product. But that's a that's an inordinate amount of data, tons and tons of data, and it doesn't fit into the into the into the marketing automation platform. So, um, it 
it it makes more sense for the data. And, and by the way, it's all redundant too, right? You having the data, just same data in multiple different places. So the idea is that the marketing automation platforms would look into the core data platforms and be able to engage customers without actually storing the data, right? Now, it also has a, has a, has a very, this idea has a very interesting part and that is security. And today, this is a very much an enterprise uh, marketing issue, uh, especially at Amazon and, and some, some of the others. Um, but but c- customers' data privacy and security and the concept of PII, personal, identifi- personal, personal identifiable information, is so key. And it is so hard to onboard new MarTech vendors because they just don't have the security standards that we do. Um, and I think that that's going to be as, as data privacy becomes more and more in the forefront of people's minds, I think that that's going to be more and more the case. So, you know, by not storing that data, you're actually in a marketing automation platform, you're actually, you know, overcoming that hurdle. Now, how does this happen? I I think that that's still to be told, right? We're we're not, we're, we're, there's some ways that it could happen, like potentially, um, the marketing the, the marketing automation platform could extract just a single lines of, of email addresses, for example, for targeting, and then purge the data afterward, you know? So, so how it comes to fruition, not exactly sure, but that is the concept that, that the marketing automation platform does not by, you know, but doesn't by default store the data on the customer. It, that lives somewhere else. And the, and the marketing automation platform actions or engages the database that lives somewhere else. I I actually agree with that. I think, you know, the idea is fairly novel because marketers are so used to managing databases within a marketing automation platform because of their close alignment with CRM. You know, you look at HubSpot, uh, you know, it's a CRM and it's also marketing automation and it does a bunch of other stuff as well, you know, at an enterprise level, Salesforce marketing cloud, you know, um, and then, you know, that's obviously so closely aligned with CRM and then you've got Oracle as well, right? The, the responses is sort of a database, they build databases within the marketing automation platform there. And so you look at you sort of up and down the market enterprise right down to the sort of um, small uh, uh, SME businesses. Um, you think about that and you you kind of go, well, yeah, it, for privacy, I think that's one major factor here. You know, even just to pull up some stats, um, looking at uh, DataGrail did a 2022 data privacy trends report. And they're saying that in the US market alone, um, the volume of do, data deletion and do not sell requests from customers has uh, is doubled. But the one that's quite interesting is um, the manual cost of privacy compliance has skyrocketed in many for many businesses. So uh, in 2020, it, uh, their average cost, I think, per 1 million identities was $192,000 for uh, managing those data deletion requests. And 2021, uh, it's uh, it's doubled to uh, $398,000 uh, per 1 million identities. Now, you think about that and you go, okay, um, clearly data deletion is a growing problem. Adherence to data privacy practices is going to be a bigger focus, particularly in digital and IT. Um, and you also think, well, 
like if you have a database that has different customer attributes than what's in your data warehouse, then what your website is collecting, perhaps something that's in the CDP and you have all these different sources of data and the different attributes on customers that makes, that just makes the cost of managing privacy extremely uh, high, right? Because you have to manage it across different platforms. And I have been in the room, Daryl, where there's been companies where they just don't even know how to do a data deletion request because of all the different data that's living in different systems. So I agree with you there that I think that there's a piece here around actually having that single source of truth. Um, and then your marketing automation platform is more of an activation layer. It's pulling from the, those data sources and making it work within their systems. You know, And there's already companies like I mentioned before, Braze, that are actually doing that now. They're actually pulling out real-time data and they're using APIs to do that. And uh, that data is not, not actually stored in that platform. And so I, I actually agree with you that there's a privacy angle on this that is changing how marketing automation platforms are planning for the future. Um, and I think it's actually quite important, something that we should definitely be looking into more in our practice. Uh, but I want to talk about your work with Amazon Web Services. I mean, um, we've touched on before at the top of this call, um, you know, you lead um, a very large practice, perhaps arguably one of the biggest practices in the world when it comes to marketing automation and marketing ops, um, you know, and Amazon is such a massive, powerful business. Uh, AWS is one of the most significant businesses on the internet now. Um, but a lot of that has come from customer centricity and customer centricity is built on experimentation and learning from your customer at scale. Now, I want to know, uh, how does your team actually approach testing and optimization across your practice? I mean, dealing with thousands of different marketers with different goals and priorities and different tests. How do you manage that? I mean, what does that even look like at, at a bird's eye view? And how do you, you and your team learn from experimentation as well? How do you take those learnings and then put them back into your work day to day? Yeah, so coming, you know, coming to Amazon and AWS was such a boot camp for me in experimentation and testing. I think that, you know, the big part that marketers get wrong is that you actually have to look at the data first before anything. And you have to you have to take a look at what's happening um and slice and dice it in a way where you can get insights first. So so, so for example, before you even try to run an experiment, you need to figure out, you know, let, let's take email, for example, like what's the global open, open rate? What's the global unsubscribe rate? How does it break down in each region? What's driving these factors, right? Only then do you make a hypothesis that tests a single variable. Only then do you say, well, we, we think we can improve the conversion rate if we do this, right? now. Now, the, the mistake that most marketers make, me included in the past, is we, we, we approach it like, let's test this and let's change it, you know, and, and we've, now we've changed it. Look, things are getting better. It must be working, right? And, that, and that's, that's actually incorrect. Um, first of all, there's a number of factors that could have happened. You don't know about your test group or your population that you're testing. Um, and the test itself could be just completely invalid just by the fact of you looking at it. I mean, there's, 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 this is a rabbit hole that, you know, that you can go down forever, but just by the idea of you looking at the data and experimentation, you could be changing it. So, so that I think is the first big learning is, you know, you need to look at the data first and then come up with a hypothesis. Um, 
once you come up with a hypothesis, you need to create a test group and a control group, meaning that you're applying the change to one group and observing another group who doesn't have the change and trying to isolate it as much as possible. And that's when you can actually come up with, with, with insights. I, I think that that's the first thing that I hope that I, I try to you know, spread is, is actual you know, scientific um, method behind testing. But also I think at Amazon, what, what, what's really great is we just have a culture of it, a culture of experimentation and of delivering results. So we always, you know, like what, one thing that we always do that encourages this, because I'm very much of the thought of, you know, the best way to make sure that, that something gets done throughout your organization is to operationalize it. Meaning that it has to, it has to come in, it has to appear and show itself through the various stages of work. And, and for us, we have, you know, not only do we have quarterly business reviews and, and, and monthly business reviews, we have weekly business reviews that, that, that are, you know, where the data is reviewed to, up to the highest levels. And, and every week it's, you know, we're looking at the data and seeing what's changed and how can, we, how can it be made better? And if you really think about it, the only way to truly improve results is through experimentation, right? So that I think that natural experimentation and testing culture just leads to, to everything else. Um, so it, it's not so much a, you know, every third month we do a test or every, every marketing campaign has one test included. It's more of that we're always thinking about how to test, how to test to, to, to improve results, um, because we have we have we're looking at the data so closely, and that our leadership is looking at the data so closely. So I think that that's that's kind of how it it manifests itself throughout Amazon. Mm, I think there's some great learnings there. I mean, um, I've sat through quite a few QBRs, quarterly business reviews where decisions are being made on where to go next in terms of experimentation on new initiatives. But that, Daryl, is just way too slow. <laughs> you know, like it's far too slow when you're a, you know, when your customers are moving much faster than you, they're making decisions, they're experiencing things every day, up to the minute, up to the second, you know, once a quarter is not good enough. I think that idea of like a weekly business review, constantly looking at the data, constantly finding insight, and then acting on that. I mean, it's not just about the velocity and the amount of tests. It's also the quality and exactly what you're trying to learn out of those experiments. You know, I, I call experimentation a window into reality. And the reason why I call it that is that it gives you the ability to have um, scientific facts about what is changing customer behavior and what is driving growth and what is creating value for customers. I mean, you can't do, you can't really get that source of truth anywhere else um, in business. And so I think, you know, Amazon and also I think Meta, well, formerly Facebook, you know, that they, these are companies that embed experimentation in everything they do. And all practices in how their engineers work and how their marketers operate, the curiosity, the insight in that into their customers, and then being able to ship experimentation at scale is something that I think has been the key to a lot of these businesses' ex exponential growth. I mean, it sounds to me, Daryl, that that's very much embedded in the Amazon culture. Um, but what are your thoughts? I mean, in terms of Amazon as a business practice, how does that actually look like in terms of culture? I mean, 
it's I think it's very important to have that experimentation mindset and culture. But what does that look like? I mean, do you celebrate tests in certain ways? Do you um, sort of incentivize people to do experiments? Like, what does that look like in terms of a cultural impact? So this is what I mean by you have to operationalize it. Mm. Um, so so one example is our promotion um, um, criteria and our promotion process. You have to live up at Amazon. You have to live up to certain leadership principles. So, so for example, there, there we have like 16 leadership principles. Um, and some of my favorites are customer obsession, thinking big, deliver results, dive deep. Um, fantastic business study for anyone that wants to learn about it. But in, if, if you want to get promoted to the next level, if you even want to get hired, you have to demonstrate that you live those principles and are, and are, you know, and, and, and that you're, you're demonstrating it through your work. So, um, you know, in order to advance, you need to show the types of experiments that you ran, the types of changes that you made and how did that impact the business as a result? So that's how you achieve experimentation at scale. I mean, there's other ways that you could try to do it, which is like, you know, and, and we do this, you know, we have a center of excellence that includes testing practices, testing methods, instructions on how to do it. Um, we have ca marketing campaign templates that already have A-B testing in them. So that's a fantastic way of doing it. But it, it's really my belief that it has to be deeper than that, deeper than just giving people the tools. They have to want to do it and they have to be measured on it. Um, so, you know, and, and, and it looks really different across different businesses. Do you know what I mean? So that's why having these sort of central practices and operationalizing culture is, is so important. Um, mm, yeah, I, that, I that, that really a, is it. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting, right? There's operationalizing, there's the incentives, there's the career growth, um, you know, all of those elements and tying that back to, uh, experimentation and you know that you know, customer obsession leadership principles um that's great but it, there is something to say that you can't you can't operationalize genuine curiosity you can't it actually comes from somebody's character i think often is that you know you meet a marketer and you're just blown away by how obsessed they are with their customer and just how fascinated and how much they truly enjoy the work and how excited they get when even when a test um, doesn't do the thing they wanted it to do, you know, but they genuinely have that passion, that excitement, that curiosity. I mean, that is stuff that's very hard to operationalize. That actually comes from perhaps hiring and assessing people's character and, and also genuine passion, interest in the role as well. And, you know, I, I obviously I've, I've learned a lot from you, Daryl, um, over the past couple of years from your thought leadership, from your writing. And that's what I actually see with you, Daryl, is that, you know, um, that passion, that customer centricity, that real desire to make marketing operations work for marketers. I mean, you know, that is just so valuable and so important. So I do want to give you a shout out uh, for the audience. Definitely follow um, Daryl, uh, follow, and um, I'll ask you in a minute where to find you. But, um, you know, uh, there's uh, only a handful of people in the industry that are actually really helping marketers to figure the marketing operation puzzle out. And you're one of them, Daryl, and I appreciate that. Um, very helpful for the industry. Um, but I want to throw to you, where can we find you on the internet? Yeah, thanks for those kind words. I really appreciate it. Same goes to you with the newsletter, the MarTech newsletter and 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 the podcast and everything. It's, it's such a fascinating industry, such a fascinating career. And, 
you know, I think that you and I, whenever we put out content, we're helping people every day. And that's how I like to think about it. Uh, my favorite is LinkedIn, of course. So my, it's just my name, Daryl Alfonso on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter. It's my, my handle is at demand Daryl. So pretty simple, just at demand Daryl. Um, but those are the places to find me. So, yeah. Right. So be sure to follow Daryl Alfonso on LinkedIn and Twitter. And we we are regularly interviewing people who are featured every week in the MarTech Weekly newsletter. We delve into topics that subscribers care about. We really go deep into um, into topics with people at the forefront of the industry, people like Daryl Alfonso. So be sure to read and subscribe at the MarTechWeekly.com. Thanks for joining, Daryl. Thanks so much for having me.